This is the voice of the Trumpet Magazine. News, economy, politics, trends, discovery, health, family, the Bible, the future. This is Trumpet Hour, the week in review. Welcome to Trumpet Hour, this first week of spring 2023. The trees are greening, the birds are chirping, and the people are getting restless indeed. This is our Week in Review edition, where we sort through the news of the week to bring you what's most important, what you might have missed. And I'm here with our trumpet writers uh, here in the studio and over our connection with our office in England. Here in the studio are Jeremiah Jock. Hello there. And Andrew Miller. Hello. And from our office in England, we have Richard Palmer. Good afternoon. And Mihailo Zekic. Hello. The warmer temperatures have brought uh, increased human activity, judging by the amount of headlines flying around the place this week. Uh, But one of the most important is one that we're going to focus in on here first. For this story, we'll go to Andrew Miller. Yeah, the good financial news in America this week is there have not been any bank failures since we recorded this program last (laughs) week. The bad news is that there's 186 banks that the... uh, economic analysts have determined are at risk of a Silicon Bank-style failure. So the federal officials, they're definitely gearing up for the possibility that they're going to have to bail out more banks. They had a really interesting hearing in Congress last Friday where actually uh, our own uh, Senator James Lankford from here in Oklahoma was uh, asking uh, Treasury Secretary Janet Yellen a lot of questions, uh, mainly about if banks here in Oklahoma are going to be backed up, in which case uh, Yellen confirmed that we're not backing up all banks. We're just backing up the banks that are too big to fail. And that determination will be made by a two-thirds majority vote of the Federal Reserve Board, the FDIC Board, the Treasury Secretary, which was herself, and the uh, Joe Biden. So about 14 people will decide which banks are too big to fail. And so predictably, um, I think I saw one report that they said actually up to a trillion dollars in the past week or so. Um has moved from small banks to big banks as people are pulling their deposits from the little banks and putting them in a bank that they figure Janet Yellen's going to say too big to to fail. It was $15 billion for Bank of America uh, alone. And uh, but more probably even more interesting than that is a uh, is an announcement that came uh, not uh, right before right before Yellen's press conference where the um, the Federal Reserve that announced that its new Fed Now program is going to be launching in July. Now, the Fed Now program is basically, it does what it says. If a bank needs money from the feds, they can get it now by using the, the Fed Now program. It's a, it's a digital transfer system that will allow uh, the Federal Reserve to transfer money to the banks, basically at the snap of a finger. You just push a button. And so you get this in place, and a lot of the more clear-eyed analysts are realizing that, okay, well, the same technology that you could use to transfer money from electronically from the Federal Reserve to a bank could be used to transfer money from the Federal Reserve to an individual. And so saying this, so this is really one of the major pieces they have to get in place to launch um, a digital dollar. Uh, in the near future, which is something the Federal Reserve started researching heavily last year. 
So this is, there's a lot of uh, big things happening here at high levels, but, and I think you're about to get to this, what does this mean or what could this mean in the future for an average person like me or you? Right. The, the common denominator between everything I just said is just like the centralization of credit in the hands of the state. Uh, which, if you know your 10 planks of the Communist Manifesto, uh, that's plank number five, is the centralization of all credit in the hands of the state. Um, all these people pulling money from the small banks and putting it into banks that are too big to, f- to fail is part of that trend of getting to the point where America doesn't have 186 dodgy banks, uh, but has like 12 big banks backed up by the Federal Reserve. And the the allegations of the digital dollar would be ready to take the next step, where there's actually um, uh, a Sole Omavera, who uh, is a communist intellectual, and I I don't say that ironically or insultingly. She's actually from Soviet Union uh, with a degree uh, in Marxism from University of Moscow on a scholarship she got from, like, Order of Lenin. So she really is really a communist. (laughs) Like a real Soviet communist from the Cold War. Uh, Biden wanted to put her in charge of America's currency, but the Republicans wouldn't confirm her uh, for some strange reason. But the... uh, (laughs) Uh, she actually had a, a big paper thing that saying that eventually, what the, when she once America gets the digital dollar, the end goal is to just abolish all the little banks that people are pulling their money from this week, and have uh, not twelve banks but one bank where every American has an account at the Federal Reserve that can be monitored, that can be tracked. Uh, you don't have to write a check to pay your taxes. The government has your money already. Uh, and then you can just use to basically as an instrument of government control. Uh, and, and to highlight how how authoritarian this is, there's actually been two bills introduced this week to try to stop this plan. So it's not just me uh, saying that this is uh, this is the end goal. Uh, Governor Ron DeSantis in Florida introduced a bill like basically saying that trying to make it illegal to have a digital dollar in Florida where his jurisdiction uh, is. And I believe we've got a soundbite on that. We can roll that. Are you interested in giving these economic central planners more power over our economy, more power over your uh, daily life and your economic activity? Uh, and I answer that question, uh, H-E double, double hockey sticks. No, we cannot have that happening. Senator Ted Cruz basically introduced uh, a similar bill to what DeSantis did, but being a senator instead of a governor, uh, he introduced it to Congress to try to get it at the federal level to block this plan. Uh, so you've got two prominent politicians who say this is the end plan, is the, is the centralization of all credit in the state where every American uses digital dollars at a Federal Reserve bank account and credit unions and local financial institutions are a thing of the past. And this is not something that just affects you if you're a bank manager or if you are a, a, a high-level federal uh, financial official. We're talking about control of money. We're talking about rather than having thousands of banks, which we do have thousands of banks in the United States right now, we're getting, as you said, there's a trillion dollars transferred just recently to the larger banks, the two big to fails, which I think are basically City, Bank of America, J.P. Morgan Chase, and um, 
one other that's not coming I think to Wells me. Fargo. Wells Fargo, yes. So it's much easier for the government to control four institutions than it is to control thousands of institutions. So we are taking a big step toward possible central control of money. And you only need to worry about that, Trumpet Hour listeners, if you use money. <laughs> if 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 you don't then then it's not of of concern but if the government controlling uh your money would affect you then then that is something to be to be watching what if if our listeners want to watch this more closely what can they read what can they look at on the trumpet.com I think the the two articles we'll put in the show notes are both from our booklet, He Was Right, about all the prophecies and predictions Mr. Armstrong taught that have come to pass. Uh, there's two relevant chapters in there, one called the Finan- America's Financial 9-11 Was Prophesied, and another titled The Communist Infiltration of America Was Prophesied, which covers um, prophesied financial curses and, like, prophesied political curses in America both. Uh, A really interesting angle is that one of Mr. Armstrong's biggest signature predictions is that a banking crisis in America would be what prompted the European Union to unite. And I I think when he said that, uh, a lot of people may have thought that this would have been something that happened uh, accidentally just due to the greed of Americans, uh, and then it forced Europe to unite, where the, the the new twist on this is what we're seeing today, is it actually looks like the federal officials are trying to create that banking crisis Mr. Armstrong talked about on purpose as a means of pushing these smaller banks out of the market so they can centralize it. Their goal, <laughs> their goal um, is to centralize all banking uh, in the hands of the government and institute a communist-style system. The prophecy indicates they won't make it all the way towards their goal. They'll get the financial crisis they need, but it will that will have <laughs> ripple effects in other nations that end up changing the, changing the way this works out so it doesn't end with an authoritarian, communistic American government uh, running a new uh, American version of the Soviet Union, but actually with a foreign enemy that has the, the power to come in and, and conquer the nation. We'll put two articles in the, the show notes, both from our book, He Was Right, about all the prophecies and predictions uh, Mr. Herbert Armstrong made that came to pass. Uh, the first being uh, America's financial 9-11 was prophesied, and the second being the communist infiltration of America was prophesied that talks about Bible verses about uh, both financial curses and political curses in the end time. All right, well, thank you for that, Mr. Miller. For those of us who need to uh, use money on a day-to-day basis. We'll keep an eye on that situation as it unfolds. Over in Europe, as springtime has come, uh, people always get more active in the springtime. They've had some cabin fever, and people are getting active indeed in Europe. Uh, We'll hear more about this from Richard Palmer. Yes, well, we talked about these French protests last week over the uh, Emmanuel Macron's heavy-handed push to raise the reti- the French retirement age. Those pr- those protests have continued. They've been pretty dramatic. There was footage coming from, um, I think it was Bordeaux's town hall, where there was a, a big fire burning right outside the entrance. A million people uh, took to the streets. And I think that's probably a very conservative estimate 
all across the country. Uh, the uh, the French president Emmanuel Macron narrowly won a confidence vote in the uh, in the French National Assembly. So his government came pretty close to falling. So his pension reforms are on track, but there's widespread protests across the country. I think one of the most remarkable parts of this is the fact that uh, King Charles III was due just after this weekend to make his first ever overseas state visit as, as King of England. And they had to cancel that. Emmanuel Macron was not keen on the optics of having a sumptuous banquet in the Palace of Versailles with a king um, while there's a lot of protests going on. So, I mean, you don't have to know much about French history to know that that's not a good look. Uh, And uh, so he canceled that. But, okay, these are big protests for France. This issue of pension ages has been a a major problem for France for probably more than a decade as various different leaders have tried and failed to get this change through. But what I think is more remarkable, because for the French, protesting is a national sport. Um, You know, they do it for for anything and everything. Uh, But Germany is having a set of strikes on um on monday and that you know the germans are very very different uh there won't be a million people taking to the streets there won't be i'm sure a town hall almost catching fire but the fact that you've got the germans holding a strike at all uh i think is much more serious even than what we see in france uh in fact the idea of striking in germany is so serious that the unions aren't calling it a strike it is a warning strike uh, not a not a full on strike, but you're still seeing uh, just about uh, across a whole range of public sector industries, different people going on strike. Your know, trains, things like that, uh, because of course in the in Europe, trains are, are, are all uh, publicly owned. These are all going to be uh, closing down, and that's you know, this is it's a different dispute here it's not about pensions but this is the same dispute you're getting in a lot of places around the world with inflation you know inflation in so many different places it's running around uh 10% or more uh, i think it's it's maybe even a little over that slightly over that in germany but paychecks aren't keeping up with that you know employees want above inflation or at least at inflation pay rises the government's it's not just Germany, but governments don't want to give that. They don't want to start what's called a wage price spiral where uh, inflation goes up. So wages go up and then this pushes inflation up further, which put and, and, and it can spiral out of control. They don't want to do that. Uh, we've had this same kind of winter of discontent in the UK. Now we're seeing it spread to Germany. So as you say, there uh, inflation is affecting people, not just in Germany and France, but in other places around the world as well. Why are we focusing in on a a warning strike in Germany uh, and and, and as you say, much more significant strikes in France uh, as opposed to perhaps more uh, consequential seeming strikes in other countries? Well, I think we have talked about some of the strikes in the UK. Uh, I think we are talking about them in in other countries as well. I think in the UK, you do see a, a you know, we focus on this this kind of political. Um, this we were on our third prime minister, a real sense of political dysfunction. So uh, I think strikes of this magnitude are, are indicative and important just about wherever they come. And I, but I, the one of the reasons why we do tend to focus on Germany, of course, is Bible prophecy and the fact that we are looking for the rise of a strong leader 
in Germany. We had an article even at the start of the year talking about New Year's riots and things like that called Germans Grown for a Strong State. You know, that there's we've, we tend to focus on this dissatisfaction in Germany because of those key critical prophecies uh, that tell us that you're going to get the rise of a strong leader within Germany. You have chapters like Revelation chapter 17 that goes through and talks about uh, the fact that you're going to have one king come along and unite all of Europe. And he's a king. He's not a president. He's not someone that's particularly democratic. And for Europe to come together as 10 nations, not 27, and unite under one king, not not a committee, you know, that's a, that implies a certain level of crisis and a certain level of discontent with the current political system, a huge level of that. So that's what we're seeing moving towards in uh, in Europe. And I think even just Bible prophecy aside, you know, Germany is concerned with inflation like few other countries. They've experienced the problems of hyperinflation before. It's You're talking about people's grandparents knowing what it's like to have all of your savings vanish because of high inflation. And they're always they are always very concerned uh, about uh, about this so you've got an extra potential there in germany i think for this to drive serious serious political change for th- so for them to have kind of gone from the very stable angela merkel era to now they're having strikes and some of this unrest it's a step towards that strong european leader that we've been talking about Germans indeed are groaning for a strong state they have been for some time and we thank you for keeping an eye on that mr palmer We turn now to Jeremiah Jacques, who watches Asia for us. Uh, You've been watching Asia all week, and there's certainly been plenty of news coming out of that region. Uh, But among all those headlines, which is the most important for us to focus in on? Yes. Yeah, there have been uh, quite a few notable stories out of uh, China in particular. Uh, A big one is that the yuan now outperforms the U.S. dollar in Russian trading. There's also an interesting story that emerged about China uh, really assisting the United States with its cannabis production. Also a notable story with the Philippines. China is warning the Philippines not to give America access to its military bases. So some some pretty big ones there. But probably more notable than all of those was Chinese General Secretary Xi Jinping visiting Moscow this week. He was there from Monday until Wednesday, meeting with a man who he often calls his best friend. And that, of course, is Vladimir Putin, the president of Russia. So they discussed, you know, Russia's war on Ukraine. They discussed trade and various other global affairs and just really did what they could to strengthen the Russia-China partnership. And it was a notable event for a few reasons. This was the first time that these two men have met in person since Russia expanded its conflict against Ukraine into this full-scale war about a year ago. It also marked Xi Jinping's first visit to any nation since he secured his third term as what you could call the supreme leader of China. Uh, So that shows you a lot, I think, about Xi Jinping's diplomatic priorities. And China, or, or Russia rather, really rolled out the red carpet for this reception. There was just all kinds of pomp-laden formalities. This was uh, not a subtle... (laughs) uh, This was a very uh, stage-managed production. I I saw some of the clips of just the the, the two men meeting, right? right? Uh, Tell us a little bit about just how much um, uh, uh, style there was, as well as the substance underneath. 
Sure. Yeah. Yeah. There was just all kinds of, uh, you know, ceremony and pageantry and pomp. The size of the flags was uh, notable. <laughs> the the Chinese flag and the Russian uh, tricolor there just uh, almost looked like they were compensating for, I don't know, it seemed, it seemed very strange. <laughs> I, just saw them, I saw them meeting in, in uh, some sort of palace-like uh, building where they, they probably entered this room that looked like it was a hundred yards long right. and then walked toward each other. Uh, over it seemed like it took five minutes for them to walk to each other just to uh, just to greet each other right and some of the logistics of that are complicated because you'll you'll notice that Vladimir Putin never stands any closer than about 30 yards to any other human being Um, and that's because he's very concerned about possible attempts on his life even from his own men so his entourage was actually closer to Xi Jinping than it was to Vladimir Putin uh, so yeah, a lot of things get complicated because of his various, you know, requirements for, for his safety and things like that. But basically they spared no expense to showcase to the world just how powerful and unwavering this Russia-China partnership has become. Um, but then you, you know, you asked about the substance there. I, I think in many ways, Putin was just extremely grateful to Xi Jinping for this visit. It helps Putin to not appear like some kind of, you know, pariah on the world stage. That has been one of the big goals of the West, to isolate Putin, to make him look alone and anachronistic. Uh, So this visit by the head of the world's most populous nation, one of the most powerful men in the world, that really helps Putin to counter that. Um, So it was a diplomatic windfall, really, for Russia. But if you look at some of the specifics, I, I think that Putin also would have been a bit disappointed by what was hashed out. Xi Jinping did not agree to give Russia military assistance. He didn't offer even one supportive word for Putin's annexations in Ukraine. Um, He also didn't offer to give Russia any of the microchips and other high-tech products that Russia has not been able to get a hold of because of Western sanctions. Now, some of those things have been happening to a small degree by some Chinese entities. You know, last week we even spoke about some drone components and body armor and and, uh, that some Chinese companies have sent to Russia and a small number of hunting rifles. But there's no government-sponsored Chinese initiatives to help Russia's war with enough of anything that would actually tip the scales, you know, in Russia's favor. So that would that would all be disappointing to Putin. But they did agree to keep on trading as much as possible. That would be very reassuring to the Russians as their economy keeps uh, contracting. And then when Xi Jinping was departing, he told Putin, quote, change is coming. That hasn't happened in a hundred years, and we are driving that change. So that really gets to the heart of what Russia and China want from their partnership. They they abhor what they call a unipolar world, where the United States is the only superpower and has global dominance. And they're determined to close the curtain on that era. So she says change is coming, and both he and Putin are determined to make that a reality. You spoke about Xi Jinping holding back. Uh, obviously, he leads perhaps what the, what is now the largest economy in the world, or or close to it. Is this a Russia-China partnership, or is it a China-Russia partnership? Very good question. Yes, and there is more and more talk about just you know how Russia is depleted and how the power dynamic between the two continues to shift in China's favor. Um, and we know that China's economy is ten times larger than Russia's. China's population is 10 times larger than Russia's. So those are huge disparities. And as part of this meeting, Putin did agree to start carrying out more of Russia's trade 
with China and with other countries in the Chinese yuan. So that's kind of a big blow to the to the ruble. Some argue that Russia is kind of becoming a vassal state to China, just a, a resource colony, you know, cut off from the West, far less powerful, just kept around so it can send uh, hydrocarbons to the very energy thirsty Chinese. And in the short term, it does look like Russia's power and influence is diminishing in this relationship. But Trumpet editor-in-chief Charles Fleury has been just very clear that when this partnership becomes a full-blown military alliance, it'll be Russia that is really at the head of it, and China will be the, the junior partner. He says that, based on Bible prophecy, that is sure. So we don't know all the details about how this shift will happen, but we should not expect Russia to become just kind of a Chinese lapdog or a resource colony. Somehow, Russia will jockey itself into the driver's seat of that tandem. That is the consistent message the Trumpet has been saying for for decades now. And we are saying that the trend you're seeing right now will reverse uh, because uh, people are talking about Putin's health. <laughs> they're, they're talking about, you know, isolating him. Um, and as you say, I've, I've seen headlines calling Russia basically a vassal to China. And it would seem that way. I mean, it would just seem to be that would seem to be the case. But we are telling you to watch for uh, the opposite and for uh, Putin to lead lead that relationship and you can check uh trumpet.com slash literature and look for russia and china in prophecy look for russia and china in prophecy thank you mr jacques trumpet hour always watches the middle east very very closely and mihailo zekich has been doing that for us mihailo what have been some of the main stories to come out of the middle east this week and which one should we zero in on well, it's been a pretty busy week in the region. Um, the Israeli protests against Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu and his judicial reform program have been ongoing since January. They're starting to get a little bit more serious now. Their uh, protesters are obstructing the way to Ben Gurion Airport to stop him from getting to flights to foreign countries. Um, reservists in the Israeli military are uh, boycotting. We'll ha hopefully have a bit more of information about that in the coming week. Another story from Africa this time, uh, we've covered on this program and on our Trumpet website before about the recently concluded or at least frozen civil war in Ethiopia. Looks like there's been a bit of interesting uh, developments with that. The uh, Prime Minister of Ethiopia, Abiy Ahmed, has approved for an interim government uh, led by former rebels in the rebel Tigray region. So we're going to see how that all plays out. Our main story, though, might be a bit of a surprise to some people. It's a bit of an interesting story. Uh, the ecumenical patriarch of Constantinople, Bartholomew I, traveled to Vilnius, Lithuania, for a trip this week to meet with the prime minister there, Ingrida Shimonite. Now, he's uh, the ecumenical patriarch. He's basically the leader of Orthodox Christians around the world, which numbers several hundred million people around the world. He's based in Istanbul, which is why I'm claiming him for the Middle East. But he's not exactly... He doesn't have too much political power. He, even in Greece itself, there's like 50,000 Orthodox Christians. There's not many faithful that look to him with too much authority. And to see him sitting across a table with the prime minister of a country and the flags of Lithuania and the Orthodox Church next to each other was a little bit shocking in the news, as if he's this big power player. But he did make a, a power play move in Lithuania. On Tuesday, 
him and the prime minister signed a cooperation agreement between the country and the Orthodox Church, encouraging deeper relations. And most significantly, Bartholomew announced the possibility of establishing a patriarchal exarchate or a uh, a new ecclesiastical jurisdiction within Lithuania. Now, that's interesting for one big point. Lithuania, not that long ago, was part of the Russian Empire. It has about 100,000 Russian Orthodox believers, and it's traditionally considered the territory of the Russian Orthodox Church, based in Moscow. And since the war in Ukraine started, there's been a lot of Russian expats that aren't too comfortable with supporting a faith that's supporting the biggest war in Europe since World War II. And... The Patriarch has done a little bit uh, of things to get under Russia's skin, like they gave Ukraine independence or the church in Ukraine independence from the Russian church a few years back. But he hasn't really done too much where he's actually taking Russian territory, so to speak. In this case, this is different. If the plans go through, he would basically be superseding Russia's church authority in a country that's traditionally part of Russia's sphere of influence. And again, that's not exactly something you expect from the Patriarch of Constantinople. On Wednesday, he gave a uh, a conference at the Lithuanian parliament, and he said some really uh, provocative things about the Russian church. He said that after the Soviet Union collapsed, uh, pseudo-religion emerged. He's basically calling the Russian church a fake religion. He said that the Russian church was guilty of the crimes in Ukraine just as the Russian state was. And the the, the one thing that really stuck out to me was he said that he had uh, plans to resist and to neutralize the capacity of the leadership of the Moscow Patriarchate. In other words, it's a direct challenge for leadership to the Russian Orthodox Church and to their patriarch in Moscow, Patriarch Kirill. That is considering at least nominally they're supposed to be part of the same religion there was a, a split in 2019 about the ukraine thing but that that's basically like the pope excommunicating the catholic church in italy or the catholic church in spain that's pretty unprecedented um we'll see what the details of this uh deal in lithuania are we'll see if he does any similar details in some other countries but it's a lot of pretty tough talk and looks like actions to back it up from one, the leader of run religion towards a leader that's supposed to be within his church. So in a sense, we might see the, the orthodox schism that the trumpet has been following for a few years now become a bit more permanent. Right. And that's that's what we're looking for. I know that uh, terms like ecclesiastical patriarchate and even Lithuania are a little less familiar to the average average person but we do know and we are expecting and we are looking for religion to come roaring back as a factor uh, especially in Europe what should our listeners be looking for along these lines and what literature might they uh, read well the Orthodox Church is an interesting one uh, as you were mentioning we talk about religion having a resurgence in Europe but we specify it's a Roman Catholic resurgence and Catholicism is not by any means the only church or the only influential church even in Europe. The Orthodox Church does give them a run for the money in countries like Greece, in Bulgaria, and other Eastern European countries. They split from the Catholic Church for almost a thousand years, and uh, the editor-in-chief of our predecessor magazine, Mr. Herbert W. Armstrong, has predicted 
for decades ago that there's going to be a reunion between these two groups if Catholicism is ever going to have a triumph over Europe. We point to scriptures like there's a prophecy in Isaiah 47, for example, that talks about this woman, this, uh, a symbol of the Catholic Church, the daughter of the Chaldeans, uh, not knowing the loss of her children or her protesting daughters, her her uh, rebel daughters coming back into her fold. And the big among the biggest of those is the Orthodox Church. Now, the vast majority of Orthodox Christians are located in Russia. So what the Patriarch of Constantinople is doing, he's basically uh, kicking away his biggest support group nominally. And in a sense, then, the Orthodox Church is getting a bit headless. I mean, for the longest time before the Russian Revolution, the Russian Tsar was considered the preeminent figure in the Orthodox world. But now there's a split between those that are in Russia that are supporting what's going on in Ukraine and everybody else. Who do they look to leadership for then? Now, the uh, another church that has been putting the pressure on Putin in different ways and for different reasons, but the Roman Catholic Church has certainly tried to rally the West to to band together on, uh, upon this as reasons to suspect that there might be a deal in between the Pope and, and the Russian church. But besides the point, they, at, at least on paper, have a pro-Western rhetoric, and Pope Francis is pretty close with Patriarch Bartholomew himself. So we don't know exactly how this is all going to play out, but considering what's going on with the Orthodox Church and how they're cutting themselves off from Russia, this could be an opportunity for the Vatican to take advantage of this, band closer together, and perhaps even reintegrate them back into the Catholic fold. Watch the Vatican. Watch the Catholic Church and its uh, level of power in Europe. Uh, you can look at thetrumpet.com slash literature and look for the booklet He Was Right. That's He Was Right at thetrumpet.com slash literature. Thank you for that, Mr. Zekich. You're listening to Trumpet Hour coming up, a landmark deal between Britain and Israel, problems in Germany's governing coalition, the heat turns up on Russia, and Russia responds. And underneath the Trump headlines this week, what has happened to the U.S. justice system? We'll be right back. Trumpet Hour, the week in review. This is Trumpet Hour. I'm Philip Nice. Again, you know that we watch the Middle East closely, and there's been a development there that uh, Mihailo Zekic has been watching for us. Mihailo, what's that development? Well, on Tuesday, Israeli Foreign Minister Eli Cohen traveled to London where he met with the British Foreign Secretary James Cleverly to sign the 2030 Roadmap for UK-Israeli Bilateral Relations. Bit of a long-winded name, but it's basically a, a new set of agreements set to 
lead Israeli and UK relations until 2030. Uh, this includes a 20 million pounds worth of joint funding on technology and innovation projects. Israel, of course, is a leader in the tech industry. Um, includes other uh, uh, areas for agreement as well, too, like security, like health. And the big thing to notice with this is not so much what it represents. I mean, it's a trade agreement between two Western democracies, big whoop. But at the same time, I mean, at the trumpet, we've talked a lot about America's relationship with Israel and uh, how there's a bit of a special relationship there. With Britain and Israel, it's a little bit of a different story. I mean, Britain is, when it comes down to it, the reason Israel exists with the Balfour Declaration, etc. But for the past few decades, uh, it's not as if Britain was anti-Israel, but at the same time, like they'd support Palestinians in the UN. They, uh, like with a lot of other European countries, they'd be one of Israel's main hecklers for the Palestinian problem. And it looks like, at least under the new prime minister, relatively new at least, prime minister Rishi Sunak in London, they're starting to take a little bit of a different turn. We're starting to see is Israel and Britain move on past the Palestinian problem and start to get more integrated, closer together, and to have a bit more of a friendship, at least in a similar stream to what we're seeing in America, and maybe not as deep, but in that direct general direction at least. Right, and that's why this is, as you say, you know, putting this in in context, uh, these types of agreements are not uncommon, but. Uh, for the UK and Israel to be drawing a little bit closer together is interesting. We've talked before on this program how these are actually brother nations. They're brother nations that have fought <laughs> with each other uh, politically and, and otherwise uh, through some of their history. But uh, why are we watching this particular deal and, and more importantly, the, the trend of these two drawing a little bit closer together? Well, a scripture we go to quite, or passage we go to quite often for a number of different events is Second Kings 14, verses 26 to 28, uh, refers to no helper for Israel, uh, in this case is speaking mainly about America and the attack going on there, and how God saves Israel through uh, a type of ancient, uh, the ancient King Jeroboam, which he ties in with Donald Trump. And in verse 28, it specifies that uh, Mr. Trump re recovers something for Judah. And that when Mr. Trump comes back in, you're going to see a resurgence, not just in America, but in Israel, in the American-Israeli partnership. And while that prophecy doesn't mention Britain specifically, our editor-in-chief, Mr. Gerald Fleury, has written an article called Britain's and Judah's Governments Fall, America Next. That was when uh, Britain and uh, the state of Israel having a lot of political problems with uh, different prime ministers coming in and whatnot. And he tied in, well, Britain's a part of the... Uh, name of Israel as well. Britain is uh, obviously a nation God is very interested in and has a lot of things in store for. So could we see a similar resurgence in Britain? And we've uh, talked specifically about Israel resurging under Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu. He wasn't Prime Minister and Mr. Fleury wrote that article, but he is now. And under Mr. Netanyahu, we're starting to see more outreaches to Britain. We're starting to see a bit of a closer relationship starting to develop. And it remains to be seen exactly how far this will go. But as I mentioned earlier, it looks like it's going at least a step in the right direction for that regard. And once Mr. Trump gets back into America, we could see all three nations band even closer together and experience a real blossoming of relationships. We're looking for the United States, Britain and 
Israel, the state of Israel, the Jewish nation, to uh, increase in their cooperation. And we'll be uh, keeping an eye on that. And Mr. Zekich, we know you will uh, be keeping an eye on that for us. Keeping an eye on Asia, as we mentioned earlier, is Mr. Jeremiah Jacques. Uh, what else has been happening there? What's the second most important thing for us to know this week out of Asia? Sure, yes. Nuclear apocalypse is getting closer. These were the words of Dmitry Medvedev, the, uh, the former president of Russia and the current deputy chairman of Russia's Security Council. He said this on Thursday, and he was basically saying that if Western countries keep on hindering Russia's brutal conquest of Ukraine, then Russia will be forced to unleash a nuclear attack on these Western powers. His exact words were, every day they provide Ukraine with foreign weapons brings the nuclear apocalypse closer. So, you know, it's not Russia's fault. It never is. Never is with Russia. There's this unyielding mindset of victimhood that just permeates the leadership and, and it's a powerful poison. Um, so this is just the latest of many threats that Medvedev and other Russians have made, just threatening the West with the nuclear option. And in this case, that's not a figure of speech. It's, it's literal nuclear war. Does everyone else remember the time when it was not common to hear threats of nuclear war from major world leaders? This is not, this is not normal. This is not uh, business as usual. Uh, we, we've gotten used to some of this belligerence uh, at, at this point, but wow, I mean, for for uh, someone that high up to be making such threats is is really uh, something to take note of. Yeah, that's a great point. This, I think, would have been utterly taboo even just a few years ago for, for one of the nuclear nine to actually threaten another nation with, with some kind of nuclear attack. So we talked earlier a little bit about uh, the weapons transfers, but there's another reason why Medvedev is upset. Yes, that's right. As he was breathing out all of his, you know, threatenings and slaughter about the weapons, he also spoke about this arrest warrant that was just issued by the International Criminal Court for Vladimir Putin. This was on March 17th that the court issued the uh, the warrant for Putin's arrest on grounds that he has committed war crimes by abducting thousands of Ukrainian children and forcibly transferring them to Russia. So that uh, that clearly is a war crime. But these kinds of warrants, they're very seldom issued by the International Criminal Court just because there's a very high threshold for proving war crimes. But the reason why they went ahead with this particular warrant is because Putin made prosecutors work easy by boasting on his official website about having abducted, you know, Ukrainian children and, and forced them into Russia. So in Medvedev's statements yesterday, he was not just angry about the Western nations helping Ukraine defend itself. He was also fuming about this arrest warrant issued by the ICC. Medvedev specifically responded to German politicians who said that because of this warrant, Putin would be arrested if he visits Germany. Uh, he responded to that saying, quote, let's imagine the leader of a nuclear power visits the territory of Germany and is arrested. In this case, our assets will fly to hit the Bundestag, the chancellor's office, and so on, end quote. So <laughs> the gloves are off. I mean, it's hard to imagine any rhetoric more provocative than this kind. And it shows us, I think, just the abysmal state of relations between Russia and the West. And right now, a great deal of attention is most often being drawn to the tensions between Russia and the U.S. 
But really, um, Trump editor-in-chief Gerald Flurry has said that the more important power to watch for a response to all of Russia's increasing belligerence and nuclear threats is Europe. Back at the start of the full-scale war a year ago, Mr. Fleury pointed out how shameful it was that America wasn't doing more to help Ukraine. That's in an article that he wrote in late February. It's called Bible Prophecy Comes Alive in Ukraine. Uh, in one part of that, he wrote, As Russia has flattened Ukraine, the U.S. has done little in response. For years, we've allowed Putin to get away with aggressive behavior. Our leaders would not challenge him in a meaningful way. The fruits of our weakness are now on display in Ukraine. And then he goes on from there to show how this just terrifies the nations of Europe. It shows the Europeans that they can't rely on America's military power. He writes, America's weakness is leading Germany to take matters into its own hands. Europe sees it cannot look to America for protection. So instead, it's looking to Germany. End quote. So, you know, here we are a year on from there, and America has has done more to help Ukraine since that article was written, but there's still mixed messages out of Washington. And with these kinds of nuclear threats coming from Medvedev and other Russian leaders, we can be sure that the Europeans are deeply rattled, and it is setting them on a path to unify and militarize so that they'll be able to stand up to Russia without America. If you're interested in learning more about this, check out Bible Prophecy Comes Alive in Ukraine at thetrumpet.com. Bible prophecy comes alive in Ukraine, as well as Russia threatens the West with nuclear war. We are living in a world where Russia is openly threatening the West with nuclear war. And as Mr. Jacques said, they're threatening, in this case, this week, the Bundestag, the, the main governmental buildings of Germany. So Germany's taking note of that, as he said, and we need to watch how Germany responds and what's going on in the Bundestag, what's going on within Germany. For that, we'll turn over turn it over to Mr. Palmer. Yes, we're seeing a bit of a spat within the German coalition, probably the most serious that we've had so far in this 15-month-long government. Uh, so it's mostly a disagreement between two of the smaller coalition parties as they try to get various different green regulations through so this is between the green party the you know the i mean you, you all know what a green party is um environmentalist and then the free democrats who are kind of like a bit pro-business libertarian party so not two parties that are particularly compatible uh so the green party has become very frustrated trying to uh to to get some of these things through and, and taken its disagreements public rather than keeping them private so he was on television accusing both of his coalition partners of hindering progress of deliberately leaking parts of internal discussions and negotiations in order to try and stall discussions then the free democrats vice chairman he struck back um by comparing the green party leader to vladimir putin um which you know as we've just heard from jeremiah not a particularly popular guy in europe uh, not a particularly flattering comparison. And you know, this is a tension that's not really going away anytime soon. Both of these parties have a pretty strong incentive to squabble with each other publicly. The Free Democrats are getting trounced in the polls. In local elections, since they joined the government, they've been obliterated. It's been a disaster for them. There's this view among their voters that they are a kind of right-wing libertarian party that is enabling a far-left socialist government. 
maybe not quite that strong, but that's that's the way a lot of people view it. What's the point of me voting for this libertarian party if I get more environmentalist regulation? So there's a lot of pressure now riding on the free Democrats to show, no, we are making a difference. We are getting some of our policies through. It's worth our while being in this coalition. So they've there's a big focus on them being more belligerent, being more uh, getting in the way more. At the same time, then you've got the Green Party and their voters are, are kind of putting on the pressure that a lot of their voters did not want them to compromise, did not want them to join this coalition, wanted them to kind of s- s- maintain their ideological purity and sit outside of government. So they're, in, they're, they're under pressure to get results. So both of these parties are really incentive. Their voters will reward both these parties for stopping the government getting stuff done and for having public spats. So there are spats in governments around the world. There are spats in, uh, I'm sure, Indonesia or Vietnam or Kenya or or even some of the spats in within China or the United States, some of the bigger nations. As you say, this is not a uh, government-ending spat necessarily, but we are zeroing in on this uh, comparatively small uh, disagreement in German politics for a specific reason. Most of our listeners will know what that is, but for our new listeners, why are we focusing in on the internal machinations of the German government so uh, with such precision? Well, I mean, first you've got to look at electoral systems. You know, you have a system of proportional representation in Germany, which you don't have in the United States and Britain and a lot of these other countries, which leads you to have more coalition governments. Uh, you know, there is no coalition ruling America or Britain. Um, I doubt there is ruling Indonesia. Uh, so the coalition government tends to instability where one or more parties can walk out. And you know, this certainly raises the, the prospect of you could see a German government collapse by the end of the year and somebody walk out of office. You have this very interesting situation within Germany where they're not, they, they have, they've always had proportional representation since their post-war constitution. They're not used to lots of governments made up of small squabbling coalitions that fall apart and lead to rapid changes. That's not something they like. They've actually been more stable than the UK in terms of their prime minister. So this is kind of uncharted territories in many respects for Germany, Uh, something they're kind of starting to get used to because they've had this problem for a decade or more. Um, But really, they're not and they're not very comfortable with this situation. There are no real viable alternatives to this coalition. So if it does fall apart, uh, they're in a very sticky situation. And that kind of sticky situation matches exactly uh, with Bible prophecy. And so we talked about the strong leader in the first half. The Bible even tells us how this strong leader is going to come into power. So Daniel chapter 8 talks about the fact that you would have a strong leader come to power. And it talks about him coming to power by flatteries. And the, the, the point of the Hebrew word there by flatteries is it's not by kind of the orthodox process. It's not by the standard kind of running and winning an election. It's by some kind of behind the scenes maneuverings. And so to have this, this kind of situation where politics grinds to a halt, people have trouble forming coalitions, things fall apart, things come together. There's all kinds of machinations and negotiations going on behind the scenes. You combine that with strikes and protests and fear from Russia and unrest in the Middle East and threats from outs within and without. Uh, This is building to the perfect climate to have the rise of that strong German leader. And you can read more about those prophecies and that climate in our free booklet, A Strong German Leader is Imminent. 
a strong German leader is imminent. Look for that on the trumpet.com. Thank you for that, Mr. Palmer. Bragg is suggesting, according to reports, that he'd like to prove a federal crime that the Department of Justice didn't think warranted a charge. Yeah. Uh, that's something that none of us have really seen before. So he's taking this bizarre case with all these conflicts uh, into what is a historic moment. And I don't think history will be very kind to him. For our last story to, to focus in on this week, we'll go back to Andrew Miller to tell us what's going on within the United States justice system. Yeah, this next story is really one of the uh, most shocking attacks on the justice system since the FBI raided Donald Trump's home in Mar-a-Lago last year. Uh, rumors have been circulating for about a week that Trump was going to be uh, arrested this week. Uh, for hush money he paid to an American pornographic film actress. Uh, the rumors at first said he was going to be uh, arrested Tuesday, then that was postponed till Wednesday. Now it's been pushed off until next week. And the reason it was pushed off until next week is the, the person making the accusations, the prosecutor in this case, the uh, district attorney of Manhattan, Alvin Bragg, uh, was hiding hundreds of pages of documents of evidence from the jury. He he went through a document trove, picked about six incriminating documents out, showed it to the jury, then had a like a star one of his star witnesses come and <laughs> reveal about how much he was how much he was hiding. And the the documents that he was hiding, one of them is a signed affidavit from uh Stephanie Clifford, the pornographic film actress, uh denying that the affair ever happened. Uh, the other one is a signed affidavit from Trump's lawyer at the time, Michael Cohen, who claimed that he paid the, that Cohen paid the $130,000 from his own money and Trump never reimbursed him. Uh, and so between these two signed affidavits, you're like, all right, now you've got evidence that maybe the affair never happened and maybe Trump never even approved the payment. And then you add that on top of the fact that there's actually a two-year statute of limitations on a, a misdemeanor of that nature, which expired five years ago. Um, you, have no, you have no case here. Uh, th this prosecutor, Alfred Bragg, must know he has no case. Uh, and the, uh, the fact that he's going after this anyway um, really does bring up the case that happened in Mar-a-Lago last year where the—, the government is weaponizing uh, law enforcement officers against political opponents when no crime uh, has been committed. And in this case, uh, I, I'm not actually going to get into my opinion on whether Trump committed the affair, uh, committed the adulterous affair or not. I don't have hard evidence either way. Uh, but in any case, adultery is not a prosecutable crime in the United States. And so the fact that they're going after this as hard as they are with as flimsy evidence as they have um, really shows that it seems like the main goal is to just keep the news, <laughs> keep this affair in the news for as long as possible. Right. And at, here at Trumpet Hour, we try to bring you the news headlines that really matter that might have gotten covered up by ones uh, that don't matter as much. Thank you, Mr. Miller, for that. You recommended The End of America's Constitutional Republic. That's available on the Trumpet.com, The End of America's Constitutional Republic. 
I'm Philip Nice, and that is your Trumpet Hour Week in Review. Email us your thoughts on the program and news tips, should you have some, to letters at thetrumpet.com. Thanks to our panel, Jeremiah Jacques, Andrew Miller, Mihailo Zekic, and Richard Palmer. And thanks to Parker Campbell and Jesse Hester for engineering and production. And thank you for joining us on Trumpet Hour. <laughs>